and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Um, give it up for God. Isn't God awesome? Holy, 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 um, uh, though the darkness hide thee, um, all thy works and his word uh, reveal who he is, reveal his strength. So we're going to open up his word today, and I'm going to start today by bringing up a name that I want all of you guys to say with me. Everyone say, Melchizedek. I didn't just sneeze, I swear. Um, it's actually a name, uh, Melchizedek. Uh, he's this really interesting guy in the Old Testament, all right? Uh, he shows up in Genesis 14, and you're probably asking yourself, okay, what does Melchizedek have to do with anything? Well, um, let me just back up a little bit from Genesis 14. Actually, I'm going to back up a lot bit. Um, in the beginning, Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the first people. Those two people were named Adam and Eve, good. Two people are paying attention. That's good. All right, Adam and Eve, what do they do? Do they obey God? No, they disobey God. And all their kids do the, uh, they all disobey as well because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. See what I did there? Apple falling. Anyway, all right. Um, All their descendants, they ruin the world with their sin. So God sends a big flood uh, to cleanse the earth. And this flood wipes out humanity except for one dude and his family. What's this dude's name? Much better. Good job, guys. Uh, Noah's the guy that built the ark. And after Noah, some other stuff happens. But the population grows again. And um, the, we go through the generations. And we get to this one guy. Um, he's our next big character in Scripture. His name is Abraham. And God speaks to Abraham. And he sends him on a journey out west with all his family. But that's where Abraham gets into some trouble. Actually, it's his nephew Lot that gets in a whole lot of trouble. Guys, I'm killing it with the preacher jokes today. I know. All right. Um, Anyway, Abraham comes to his rescue, and Abraham defeats like 10 kings. All right. And it's obvious that God helps him out because you don't just roll up on 10 kings and give them the old smackdown without a little help from heaven. And right after Abraham defeats these 10 kings with God's help, another king shows up on the scene. And it's our guy. It's Melchizedek. All right, he's the self-proclaimed king of Salem or Salem. Um, he's a high priest of the Lord Most High, and he comes to Abraham uh, after this battle, bringing Capri Sun and orange slices, or at least that's how I envision it. Actually, what he brings them, he brings them bread and wine, and it's really interesting, right? Um, let's check it out in our text, uh, Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And that's Melchizedek. That's what we've got uh, in scripture about this guy, Melchizedek. He shows up with bread and wine. He praises God, blesses Abraham, and then he scrams. Um, And before he leaves, Abraham gives him a tenth, though. Uh, of all the plunder that he just won in the battle. It's a tithe. Uh, and it's kind of a weird story, right? It's like, what is this story doing here? But that's Melchizedek. That's the king of Salem. All right, I'm going to get back to that in just a little bit. Uh, but first things first, let me introduce myself. I am Jeff Lorimer. I'm the worship and spiritual growth pastor. And I'm not really the king of anything. Uh, but I do oversee our generations ministry here. Uh, and regarding our generations ministry, I just want to take a second and I want to talk about um, camp. 
for our students. So I'm taking some time out of the sermon because I think it's this important. Bent Trees uh, Summer Camp, they're going up to the mountains July 27th through the 31st up in Snow Mountain. Um, question, woo, we got one woo from a youth leader. I cannot wait to hear that after we, after that week. It's going to be awesome. But how many of you guys went to camp as a kid? Any happy? Look at all those happy campers out there. Me too. Um, you know, for me, Camp was a huge part of God getting a hold of my heart as a teenager. Um, So I just want to put this challenge in front of all you parents out there. All right, parents, get your kids signed up for camp. Seriously, it'll change their lives. Camp changed my life. Um, And I think the early bird discount is going away soon. So go to btc.churchcenter.com, sign up your kids. And just heads up, uh, and this is why I'm taking a minute here, we don't do camp like other churches. We don't do like the loud concerts and the gross games, the show and the spectacle. We go up to the mountains. We invest in our, we invest in our pre-existing student D3 groups and we bring in the very best Bible teachers we can to give kids the truths from scripture that will last them a lifetime because it's not about show or spectacle for us. It's about the fruits of biblical truth. All right? And yeah, they're, amen, right? And they'll have plenty of fun, I swear, hiking and hanging out with their friends, but we don't give them hype that's going to fade away, all right, as soon as they come down the mountain. Here at Bentry, we value generational faith. That's lifetime discipleship that doesn't fade with time, and that's what camp is all about for us. So, parents, go sign up your kids at btc.churchcenter.com. Deal? Deal. All right. Well, I told you I went to camp as a kid, and it was at summer camp that I first heard this name, Melchizedek, or Melchizedek. Um, His name was the answer to a trivia question. And for most people, that's all Melchizedek is, right? He's just this random dude that shows up in the middle of Genesis, never to be seen or heard from again. Uh, But interestingly, his appearance actually harkens to a place you've all heard of. And, And just follow me here for a second. You guys remember me mentioning that Melchizedek was a king, yes? What was he a king of? He was the king of Salem or Salem, right? Uh, we could say Shalom as well, um, the Hebrew word for peace. And you guys are like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard like Jewish people say Shalom, right? Um, shalom, it means peace or wholeness, being at rest. And Melchizedek was the king of this Shalom, this peace, all right? And here's where it gets really awesome. Keep following me here. In Hebrew, the word for city or foundation is Jeru. So you combine the word Jeru with Salem and you get Jerusalem. All right, we're going to talk a lot about Jerusalem today. Uh, In the kingdom of Melchizedek, as the king of peace, it would have naturally included Jerusalem, the city of peace. And and just to change gears a bit, uh, some people say that Melchizedek is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, what we would call a Christophany. And I tend to think it is, um, but whether you think that or not, one thing is for sure. Melchizedek, he looks a lot like Jesus. All right, um, go back to that, that passage if you've got your finger in it. Um, just like Jesus, Melchizedek is a high priest of the Lord Most High. He's the righteous king of Solomon, and he comes in peace. He comes in shalom with bread and wine, right? Two interesting elements, and he praises God as he graces us with his presence. And Abraham, Abraham's got the right response to the king of shalom appearing to him. Abraham gives him the tithe. He honors him as his great high priest, and he submits to him by blessing him in return. And I used to be really confused about this story. I used to be really confused about what this all meant until I got to know Jesus a little bit better. I used to be confused about what the story meant until I saw how various people respond to Christ, all right, as the gospel is preached to them. Some people, they receive Christ as king, all right, and others reject. 
Some receive, others reject. Some embrace Christ's rule in their lives. They embrace his reign that brings shalom. And other people, they don't want him in their lives at all. They don't want Christ, the king of peace, telling them what to do. So today, what I want to do for my talk, I just want to take us on a journey as we go back to the first century and we talk about the people of Jerusalem, the people of this city um, uh, of peace, and we're going to talk about the history of Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to talk about the history of the Jews and what happened to the Jews after they rejected Christ. Um, and guys, I think there's a lot we can learn here about how we ought to receive Christ as we look at what happened to the city of peace that didn't receive its king of peace. So if I had a title for today's sermon, it would be just that, Jerusalem. The city of peace. Which is kind of an ironic title, right? Jerusalem, the city of peace? Like, especially when you think about all the war and unrest and turmoil that have defined Jerusalem throughout the centuries. Um, Today, our text, uh, though we looked at Genesis 14, we're actually going to be in Matthew 23. Um, We're going to be at the last part of Matthew 23, and we're going to look at Jesus' final condemnation and his actual lament over the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to start in verse 33 of Matthew 23, and we're going to take it through Matthew 24, verse 2. So now would you stand uh, with me in reverence of God's word as we read our text from the morning? Again, this is Matthew 23. Let me go ahead and get there. Matthew 23, uh, verses 33, um, going through uh, to chapter 24. Verses 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I, and this is Christ speaking, am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus left the temple. And he was walking away when his disciples came up to him and they called his attention to all of its buildings. And Jesus said, do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take your seats and let's go ahead and pray. Um, God, we uh, just take a second today just to praise you. Um, for saving us. That's how we start today. We, we want to praise you for saving us, not just from the penalty of our sins, God, um, but you saved us from ourselves. We were at war with you in our hearts, and we were busy digging our own graves, and we didn't want anything to do with you, Lord. But you came to us with an olive branch of peace. You changed us from the inside out, and you resuscitated our very souls. Lord Jesus, you brought peace into our lives. So we thank you, and we pray now that you would help us to hear your word, that you would teach your way and help us to obey. Help us to embrace you as our king. Jesus, you are our king of peace. You paid for our peace with your precious blood, and with your body broken for us, you brought rest to our restless souls. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Well, there's one verse of today's passage that I really want to hone in on. It's verse 37. So I'm going to read it for you. Go ahead and put your finger on that verse. If you're going to highlight any verse today, it'd be that one right there. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Um, Guys, this is one of the more unique statements of Christ uh, and all the Gospels. And what makes it unique are two things. First thing, who it's directed at, all right? Um, You go back here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, It's directed at the entire city of peace and all of its occupants. And that's interesting because... We don't usually see Christ making these big, sweeping generalizations over an entire city. We see it a couple times, but this is unique, right? We see him usually treat the individuals of a city, not the whole city in general, but Jerusalem's a unique city. Um, The city is exceptional, and we'll see why in a little bit. But the second thing that makes uh, this pronouncement so interesting is is this. It's where it comes uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So, uh, you see, the Gospel of Matthew, just to give you a big picture of what the Gospel of Matthew is all about, it's marked by these five great sermons. One, two, three, four, five. Um, and in between, there's narrative and teaching and other good stuff. And we're about to come upon the last sermon um, of Jesus in uh, in the Gospels of Matthew. So you guys know, whenever I get up here, I preach through Matthew. We're about to come upon uh, Matthew 24 and 25, and that's where the fifth and final sermon comes in. You guys can be praying for me as I think about preaching this. It's 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 all about the end times. So wish me luck on how to talk about the world ending without sounding like a lunatic. Anyway, before this fifth sermon, um, there's this hinge. And we just saw it right here. There's this hinge between chapters 21 through 23, which are all of Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders, and then his fifth and final sermon that comes in chapters 24 and 25. Um, And so go back with me um, to the last few times I've preached. Matthew 21 and 22, they cover the last week of Jesus' teaching on the earth, After the triumphal entry, it's got all the religious leaders questioning him in the courts. And then in chapter 23, Christ goes on the offensive, and he teaches those seven woes. You guys remember when I danged the bell? Danged the bell? Dinged the bell? When I dinged the bell, right? Um, Those woes were pretty condemning. Um, you got to understand that Christ was ruthless in chapter 23. And at the end of this crescendo of the seven woes, he punctuates all of them with this bright red stamp. And it's a bloody... It's a blood-filled damnation for all the Jewish leaders. He judges them for all the prophets they've murdered, and he judges them for all the people they're going to murder. And on top of that, he condemns them for not heeding the first murder they have in their scriptures, right? All the way back in Genesis 4, Abel. And he uh, criticizes and condemns them for all the murders they have in their scripture up to Zechariah, who is the last prophet sent to them. Um, You guys can check it out right here. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you, here's that bloody exclamation mark I was talking about. Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. And there's been a lot of blood shed on the earth. And it's going to come upon them. From the blood of righteous Abel... That's the first guy we see murdered in scriptures, Genesis 4, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. All right, that's the last prophet that was sent to Jerusalem, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Christ just heaps the condemnation 
on the Jewish leaders here. Like, as if the seven woes weren't enough. Firstly, he calls them a brood of vipers, which is really interesting language, because that's exactly what John the Baptist called them. You guys remember John the Baptist? He called all the Pharisees and religious leaders a brood of vipers. So he's got John the Baptist joining in on his condemnation of them. And then he says that all the blood that was spilt, from Abel all the way to Zechariah, who was the last prophet sent to Jerusalem, he puts all of their blood, all the indictment, For that, on their heads. The people that are plotting to kill him. And then Jesus says he's going to send more prophets and more teachers and more people to witness to them. More people that the Jewish leaders are actually going to turn around and kill. Like, think about uh, Acts. And you think about Stephen, uh, the very first martyr who was killed by the Jews. And then you follow along in Acts and you see all of Jesus' disciples um, and and the apostles that were hunted down and persecuted uh, by the leaders in Jerusalem. Guys, Jesus is condemning them here for all of it. All right? And then... When you think it just can't get worse, right? When he keeps on heaping on condemnation after condemnation, Christ lets up in verse 37. He takes a step back, and it's like he lets his hair down for a second, uh, and he just breaks down. And he just starts mourning over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Guys, how often, how long have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you just weren't willing? Like, after he punctuates his seven woes with probably the, like the bloodiest, most brilliant scarlet red exclamation mark we've ever seen in scripture, Jesus is overcome with grief. Um, If you look in the Gospel of Luke, you can keep your hand in Matthew 23, go to Luke 19. You'll actually see Christ is weeping in this moment. As he approached Jerusalem, this is Luke 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known that on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you. Then when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. They won't leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And you've got to realize Jesus is saying this between sobs. <laughs> like, guys, how long... How long will I put up with you, Jerusalem? How long will you reject the one that comes in peace? How long will you bite the hand that feeds you? I've sent you prophets and preachers, pastors and teachers, all just to help you see the truth, and yet you murder them in cold blood, and you do evil to those who seek your good. You kill those who come to save your life. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! You call yourselves the city of peace? You wage war against God, Jerusalem. So war will come to you. And you see it right there in this passage that Jesus is prophesying against them. Talking about the enemies that will come and encircle them. And what's funny in this Luke passage, like you go back here, uh, you hem them up on every side. That's what he's saying the enemies will come and do. It's so funny. Go back to your Matthew passage now. Christ just wants to hem them up, right? Like a mother hen, he just wants to gather them unto himself under his wing of protection. But no, the people of Jerusalem will have nothing of it. So going back to verse 33, he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape 
being condemned to hell. You know what's really interesting about these snakes, these vipers that Christ is describing here? Um, upon their birth, these snakes were known to eat their mothers from the inside out. Like, I kid you not. Like, the snakes, as they were born and hatched, they would eat their mothers. This is what the, bio, the world of biology calls matricide. All right? And yet Jesus, what is he saying? He says, I want to be your mother hen. I just want to gather you together. All right? Even though they just want to tear the flesh from his body. And they will. How often I've longed to gather your children together, Jerusalem, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yet you weren't willing And I told you this passage was interesting because it's where it's located, right? It's located at the end of chapter 23, right after Jesus' strongest condemnation we have in scriptures. He starts weeping for the religious leaders. And it's such an interesting contrast, but it makes sense when you know what's coming for Jerusalem. Christ knows the desolation that's coming for this city, and so he weeps for the city. And why does he weep? Because God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. God does not rejoice. He does not take pleasure in seeing judgment come to those um, who who are deserving. Um, Guys, what do you know about the history of Jerusalem? Seriously, um, I'm saying the word Jerusalem. What does that trigger in your brain for for its history and its people, right? Um, I told you this passage is interesting because it makes a grand sweeping generalization uh, about Jerusalem and all the Jews there. Well, Let me just go over what the world knows. Let me establish some background knowledge. What does the world know about Jerusalem and the Jews? Um, The world knows that though its city of, its name means the city of peace, Jerusalem has really never known peace, right? Do they ever run out of rocks to throw there? Um, They haven't known peace for the last 2,000 years since Christ came to the earth. And the Jewish people, think about what you know about the Jewish people. They've only known heartache as a people, from the pain of the Crusades and the Inquisitions all across Europe to the modern-day horrors of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. So, and when you look at it, when you see all the blessings that the Jewish people enjoyed throughout the Old Testament for thousands of years, it seems like for the last 2,000 years, they've experienced wrath, right? For their rejection of Christ. And on a more serious note here, just to take a sidebar, 2,000 years of wrath is just a glimpse of the eternal punishment waiting for the one who rejects Christ. I'm just saying. Um, You've got to realize, though, that God does not rejoice in Jerusalem's destruction. He does not rejoice in the scourging of the Jews. He doesn't take pleasure in punishing the wicked. Verse 37 of Matthew 23, it shows us that God weeps for those that reject his, his olive branch of peace. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. You see the repetition here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Notice that repetition. It harkens to like passages where Jesus is talking to Martha. Martha. Or when he meets Paul on the road to Damascus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You guys see that repetition? He's saying it over and over again. Like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why won't you just listen? How I've longed to gather you together. And yet you weren't willing. Do you guys see the love in Jesus' eyes? He's literally overflowing with lament. And it's and his lament is more than just like the 2,000 years of being a scourged people that Jesus is lamenting. He's lamenting what's going to happen to Jerusalem in this very generation. If you jump down to Matthew 24, verse 1, 
you see that Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him, and they called attention to its buildings. Back in those days, Jerusalem was something to behold. All right, the Temple Mount was incredible. But Jesus says, you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And you got to realize this is a bold prediction for Christ. You see the stones that made up the temple, uh, the temple mount in Jerusalem, they were absolutely ginormous. Some of them weighed upwards of 50 tons. These are absolutely huge stones, even by today's standards. And what's incredible about these stones is they were hewn by hand. Uh, they were cut miles away from the temple and then dragged, all right, and put perfectly into place. Right on the temple mountain, there were thousands of them stacked on top of each other. Guys, I'm telling you, this was a wonder of ancient architecture, an absolute marvel of human ingenuity and genius. And it's no wonder that the disciples stopped to behold it. You would too. But then Jesus says that every one of these stones... Every one of these stones weighing thousands of pounds is going to be thrown down. Like, how could he make such a prediction? Maybe he's just speaking with hyperbole, right? Maybe he's just exaggerating, like the destruction that will come to Jerusalem. No, no. He's not exaggerating. And the very people of Jerusalem will be wishing he was exaggerating when in 40 years, that is around, right around AD 70, the Romans are going to come to town. All right, they're going to come and they're going to demolish the temple. Um, and look at verse 38 back in Matthew 23. Desolate. Look, your house Jerusalem is left to you desolate. I asked you what you knew about the history of Jerusalem. Um, let me tell you what happened to Jerusalem um, in the years following Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, in the year AD 68, so this is what, 30 years or so after Christ's resurrection, uh, the Roman general, Titus, who later became the emperor, uh, he took his army down the Mediterranean coast and he started rolling up all the Jewish cities because there was a revolt taking place. And he forces all the Jewish revolutionaries into Jerusalem. And by AD 70, less than 40 years after Christ was resurrected, the siege of Jerusalem began with thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people inside the walls of Jerusalem. And what do the Romans do? They wait out the people in the city. They starve them to death until the people of the city start eating each other. And any Jews that would try to escape the city, to try to escape this horrible scene that was going on, they were rounded up and they were crucified on the hills outside the city. Josephus tells us that there, were, there weren't enough trees for them, all right? And as their corpses were rotting on whatever trees that weren't burned up or used in the siege works, it truly was a scene of hell on earth. And eventually the Romans, they breached the walls and every man, woman, and child in the city were killed. And they set fire to the temple, that temple that the disciples and the Jewish leaders had adored. But here's the thing. They didn't get all the gold out of the temple before they burned it up. All right? So what ended up happening was that all the gold in the temple melted down. And where did it run? It ran between all the cracks and the stones on the temple mount. So what do you think all the Roman soldiers did to get to that gold? They turned over every stone on the Temple Mount, one by one, just to scrape the gold off and satisfy their greed. They threw all these stones into the Kidron Valley below where you can still see them. Guys, again, every stone was thrown down. Not one was left on top of the other, just like Jesus said it would happen. After this, the Jews are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire and you guys know what the next 2,000 years mean for the Jews. It wasn't until 1948, until the Jews were finally reunited again. 
in the Holy Land. But even now, Israel is plagued by war and unrest. And guys, this is what it looks like when God removes his hand of blessing. This is what it looks like when God's chosen people reject the Savior sent to them. This is what it looks like when you refuse to be gathered under Christ's wing of protection. Desolate is what it looks like. Now you may be asking yourself, okay, so what? What about all this history? Why should I care about it? Well, here's three reasons why I think you should care about this history of Jerusalem and the Jews. Number one, this event... The fall of Jerusalem would have been so traumatic on the entire psyche of the Jewish people that any writer with a Jewish heritage, all right, would have certainly, if he was writing after AD 70, would have certainly mentioned something about the the fall of Jerusalem. And yet, in all of our New Testament, we don't see anything about the destruction of the temple other than Jesus' prophecies. Right, seriously, guys, none of the gospel writers, they mention the temple's destruction, nor does Paul mention it in his epistles, nor do we see it anywhere in the New Testament. So, what does that mean? That means that this is proof that our New Testament was written before AD 70. Think about that for a second. Like, this puts a deadline uh, on when our New Testament was written by, and that's a big deal because AD 70, that's less than 40 years after Christ was resurrected. Guys, um, that means that our entire New Testament, it's incredibly reliable because it was written less than a generation after Christ was resurrected. There was no room for a myth, all right, to develop. It means there were still eyewitnesses around that saw Christ when this thing was written. <sighs> Why? Because like the guys who were, that were alive and well, they would have mentioned something, right? They would have said something. And I hope you guys are tracking with me here, especially if you have doubts about the resurrection. If you have doubts All right, that's okay, but you got to understand this document right here, this is an ancient document and it's more reliable than any other ancient document in all of history. All right, you believe in Alexander the Great? That's 70 manuscripts. This is 24,000 manuscripts. All right, guys? And it was all written by AD 70, which is irrefutable evidence for the credibility of our New Testament. And the second reason now why you should care about all this history is that this history shows us the reality of war and the Christian response to it. Here's what I mean. After this moment in history, the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion was never the same. Because you see, for them, their spiritual identity was tied up in their national identity, right? It was tied up and built upon who they were as a nation and the marks of their citizenship, right? Their circumcision, their land, their temple, but all that was destroyed. Their nation destroyed, their land laid to waste, their temple left desolate. But for us Christians... Our faith isn't based around what country we live in, is it? Our faith isn't based around a temple or a building or a set of rules and rituals. Our faith is built upon Christ, the one whose life could not be destroyed. And though the Jewish leaders murdered him, he rose up again. And though the Romans completely destroyed the temple, they could not destroy the man that was raised to life on the third day. Go back to John 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Because he's not talking about the capital T temple. He's talking about himself. All right? I'll raise it again in three days. And the people were saying, but Jesus, this temple took 46 years to build. It took the Roman soldiers months just to turn over every stone. But here's the thing is our faith as Christians is not built upon a temple. It's not built upon anything built by human hands. Our faith is built on the rock that will not be moved, the one that stands victorious over life and death, the one whose life could not be extinguished. Amen. Amen. 
And the third reason why I think this history should matter to you, the final reason why I think you should care about this, is this right here. Jerusalem, the city of peace. It was ravaged by war, and it's been plagued by turmoil and unrest ever since. And you got to realize that there's a war raging in you as well. In your very soul. The Bible's got all kinds of passages. This is one I took from 1 Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. What do those sinful desires do? They wage war against your very soul. The Bible makes it clear in several places that there is a war in every single human heart. This war rages in our minds and in our souls, and it's the war we fight with our conscience. Right? God's voice inside telling us what we ought not do. The things we know are sin, and yet, what do we, what do we do? We all want to sin. We all want to do what we know is wrong. We all desire what is contrary to God's will. And so there's war in every human heart. Romans 7, verse 21, says that, So I find this law work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You guys see this? Like you go back to verse 21. Evil is right there inside of us. The enemy isn't at the gates, all right? He's already infiltrated. He's on the inside. He's occupied our minds and set up his strongholds and beachheads in our hearts. And you see where this war takes place. It takes place in the law of your mind. It takes... (laughs) We can't get rest. We can't turn our minds off. I know that's true. All right? It keeps us awake at night. It keeps us from thinking clearly. And we all know this feeling, all right? This feeling of being ruled by the chaos and circumstances in our lives, being subject to the tyranny of the urgent, being enslaved to all the troubles around us and the troubles within us. And we just go from one calamity to the next, day after day, until we collapse from exhaustion. And though we're broken, we never seem to get a break. What a wretched people we truly are. So, go ahead and answer that question there, friends. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? One person knows. Go ahead, answer out loud. Seriously, who will rescue you from this body that is subject to death? It's Christ. You guys got it. That's a little bit more like it. This war in our souls, it's universal. We all feel it, but we know who is the solution. The solution isn't a what. It's a who. And for some of you today, I don't really need to convince you about this war, do I? I don't need to convince you about the devastation and desolation this war causes. Um, I look out there, and I see it on your guys' faces. The war is a relationship that you just can't fix. Uh, the war is a wayward spouse, or maybe it's a wayward kid, um, or a wayward family member. The war is a diagnosis, or it's a condition, or maybe it's an addiction. The war can be a job, or a boss, or a parent, or a commute. And you're war-torn, just like Jerusalem. Your heart ravaged and plundered every stone that you so meticulously have carved and put into place in your life, just being overturned. 
And for most of humanity, guys, this is just what life is, right? Life hurts and then you die. But, but praise God that there is a peace for our troubled souls. Take a look at Romans 8, 7, guys. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Um, That phrase, hostile to God, in other translations, it's rendered at war with God. But I need you to check out the verse right before this. Uh, Romans 8, 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, yes, but the mind governed by the spirit is The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. This war that rages in your very heart and soul, it will be the death of you. But if you submit your mind to Christ, you find peace. Peace for the problems that plague us. Tranquility in the midst of all the troubles around you. Rest. (laughs) Rest on the restless nights when you're struggling and wrestling and tossing and turning For Jesus Christ, he's our anchor in the waves. Submitting ourselves to the Father's plan, that's our peace. And if we let our minds be governed by the Spirit, I promise you, you'll experience a supernatural peace that transcends understanding and guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. For Christ is our bridge over troubled waters and knowing him fully, surrendering wholly, To the king of peace, that's the only remedy for our war-torn hearts. God wants to give us peace. And that's why he's given us his son, the king of peace. So friends, you know I usually only have one main point when I preach, and here's here's my main point. No Christ, no peace. But if there is no Christ, there will be no peace. I know... I know it reads like a bumper sticker. Some of you might even have it on the back of your car. But here's the thing is if you embrace Christ as your king, if his kingship rules your daily reality, if you know him as Lord, I promise you this, you will have peace like a river. If you know Christ, you'll know deep-rooted inner peace that weathers the storm. But if you don't know Christ, there will be no peace for you. You'll continue to be ruled by the chaos and entropy that rules this world. So it really is that simple. If you know Christ, then you'll know peace. Peace deep down in your soul. And some of you are saying, like, Jeff, come on, I know who Jesus is. I prayed the prayer a long time ago, right? I'm I'm a Christian and everything, but I still feel like I've got a war raging in my soul. Well, firstly, I have to ask this one question with, with all sincerity. Do you really know Christ? Do you really know him? I mean, are you sure that you're sure? More than knowing who he is and what he did for you, do you know him as your friend? Guys, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, you're not where you want to be. If you just know who he is, but you don't have true friendship with him, if you haven't submitted to him as your king, you might not really know him. And you might want to pray with me or someone else after service. But, but for those of you who do know that you know him, and yet you still feel at war, here's my plea for you. Draw nearer to him. Yes, the fighting is fierce, but his love is fiercer still. Amen. And there is a refuge from the storm, under his wing of protection. I promise you, friends, he'll still your heart as you become still and as you cast your cares upon him. Think about a fisherman, right? He doesn't just cast his reel once and then go home, right? He rests easy as he casts and casts and casts and he trusts the process and so should you, all right? As you cast your anxieties on Christ again and again, I know you feel the war in your soul, but you can feel a peace. You can rest knowing the final outcome of this war and I mean it. 
I mean it today. You can have peace. Peace. Be still. These are the words that Jesus spoke to the storm, and I believe he's speaking these same words to some of you today. Peace. Be still. You can trust your king with how the battle unfolds. And if your mind's ruled by worries, it isn't ruled by Christ. So take the time now, I implore you, to know Christ and you'll know peace. And if you don't take the time to know Christ, you'll only know war in your heart and soul. But now it's time to get real, friends. All right, it's time to draw a line in the sand. I've talked at you for a while now, and I'm going to step off the stage here in a few minutes, and you're going to have to figure out what to do with everything we've talked about today. And so I've got to ask, are you going to leave this place the same as you came? Are you going to do something about the war that's raging inside of you? Can I give you a next step, church? I want to give you something to do this week that will actually shift the tides of this war. Something to, to, do on your, to put on your to-do list that will actually bring a deep-rooted peace that weathers the storms. And if you don't want to do this thing, that's fine. You don't have to. But if you don't do this, I don't think you'll ever find true peace and you'll always be ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. And I don't want you to be ruled by the war inside you. I want you to be ruled by the king of peace. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to be gathered unto Christ. It's what Jesus longs to do with you today. And I know this for a fact because he says so. In verse 37, and you could put your name right there. Jeff, Jeff, you who would kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. So be gathered unto him. Be gathered unto Christ. And here's what that means. That means that I'm asking you to gather together with your church family every single Sunday. And don't miss a weekend when you're in town. In fact, it might mean that you don't leave every weekend this summer to go camping because like, you've got a church family to gather with, and that's more important than the mountains. Or being gathered unto him might mean that I'm telling you to meet every week with your D3 group, to not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other with your presence. And for some of you, being gathered unto Christ might mean I'm telling you to submit to the King of Peace by fully embracing base 10 living. You guys remember that dude Melchizedek? The king of peace that I mentioned at the beginning of our time today. What did Abraham do when the king of peace came to him in the flesh? Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And guys, for some of you, the one thing that God wants to use to gather you under his wing, it's this right here. It's giving him a tenth of everything, giving him his tithe. Like if you were to start like seriously giving him his 10%, you'd care more about this community, right? You'd be invested. You'd start care. So you start caring more about being at church uh, every single week. You'd start caring more about being gathered unto him. And honestly, friends, just giving him 10% of your money is the easy part of base 10 living. It's easy to be God's employee, but God wants more than your money. He wants your heart. He wants the first hour of your day. He wants to be the first thing you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about when you go to sleep. He wants to be more than just an afterthought. So I'm begging you, have a base 10 response to the King of Shalom, Jesus Christ, because a base 10 response is how he wants to gather you unto himself. And friends, just like Melchizedek, Jesus comes to us with bread and wine. The bread is his body broken for you, so you don't have to be broken by the war raging inside of you. The wine is his blood spilt to buy your peace, 
a peace with a loving God with whom you're by nature at war with. Base 10 living is the right response. And I don't say this because we want something from you here at Bentry. No, we want something for you. Base 10 living will bless you more than it will ever bless us. Base 10 living is how Jesus gathers his people together. It's how he gathers us unto himself. And it's how he gets all of us invested in this body of believers. It's how he gets us invested in his kingdom cause. So I'm asking you guys, draw this line in the sand. Make time for daily peace. Maybe base 10 living for you is the first 10 minutes of your day, opening his word and spending time with him in prayer. And if you do that, if you're gathered unto him, uh, you'll know peace. If you know Christ, you'll know peace. But if you don't, you might not ever know peace. So don't reject him as the people of Jerusalem did. Receive him and draw near to him. Would you guys pray with me now, church? Jesus, you calmed the storm, you stilled the sea, and you spoke peace to our troubled souls. You bought this peace with your very own blood, and you desire peace for us right now. Peace. Be still. God, we accept your terms of surrender. And so we submit to you. You're our king of peace. And we admit that we could never make peace for ourselves. We confess that everything we've done to earn our own peace is sin. And we receive the peace that you offer us. So help us now to give you what you deserve. That's our whole lives as a worship offering to you. Our base 10 response. All of our time, all of our energy, and all of our resources to you. Help us make room for you every day. Because we know that if we don't, we're going to put ourselves back on the throne of our lives. Help us to get off the throne of our hearts and give that space to you. So come speak to us now, Lord, as we eagerly desire your lordship in our lives. You're our king of peace, Jesus Christ. And it's in that name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Would you guys stand? Would you sing with us? Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.